Cool. Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is an honor uh, to be with you all this morning to think about how we as church uh, can think about suicide in joining Jesus in saving and bringing healing to our brothers and sisters. Uh, if you would, I'd like to, to pray over us and then we'll, we'll dive right in. <clears throat> our Father, we believe that you see the world the way that it is and the way that it could be and the one day how it will be. Uh, God, we pray that you, through your Spirit, would be here and help us to see the way uh, you see the world and to empower us to join you in making the world as it could be. Uh, your vision for it, your dream for it. Um, God, may it be um, all about you and your work this morning. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, to name the elephant in the room, <laughs> coming to a class on suicide is a very heavy topic. It can be anything from, uh, it ranges tragic, intimidating, scary. Um, and so a couple important things as we start out on this. One, this can be something that is very emotional, something that impacts us personally uh, in a lot of different ways. So if at any point anything covered today um, is distressing, stirs up some hard things, feel free to, to come talk to me or I'm sure Mike or Terry afterwards, and we'd be happy to, to help any way that we can. Uh, the second thing is you'll notice at times I'm lighthearted, uh, and that's because this class is not about death, but about hope and about life, and about how we can partner with Jesus in being vessels of that hope and life to our brothers and sisters, and for ourselves. Uh, so that's kind of how I'm approaching this, and would love, well, just to be real honest, I'm not nearly interesting enough to listen to for a whole 45 minutes. <laughs> so I want to encourage you, uh, if you have thoughts, questions along the way, feel free to jump right in with those. Uh, I've got some things that I want to cover, but this happens most meaningfully in a dialogue. Um, so I'm curious, as you, whether you read the syllabus or you just walked in and you learned what we were talking about, um, are there any initial reactions, any thoughts, feelings, questions that, that come to mind when you hear this topic? What, what jumps into your mind first when we think about suicide in the church? Always a question about their salvation, because uh, I've heard people say, uh, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. What if I kill self? then what about their salvation? So it's like they have no opportunity to repent. Right, yeah, that question gets there a lot of, is this the un a unforgivable sin? Sure. Yeah? What role can I play in meeting, helping to meet the needs of these people in the situation that they're in? Yeah, how do I help? And that can seem like such a huge task. It's like, man, I don't, I don't really get what's going on. I don't know the right things to say. And that, that fear, that anxiety can just be huge. I definitely hear that, absolutely. I think for a lot of people, it's they, they can't imagine how someone could get to, to, from their own personal experience, they can't imagine how someone would get to the point where they would try to do that. Yeah, and, just, and yeah. it's just they can't get their, wrap their mind around. Yeah, it seems so foreign of, uh, man, what, what happens to get with someone's that desperate? Absolutely. Yeah. It's usually hidden, though. I mean, you don't find out they would like that until after they're gone. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can be looking back of, oh, I didn't even realize that they were in that, that space. Because I think most of us would try to do something if we knew, but sure. people will hide it Yeah, feel that Absolutely. It can be hard to, to even want to, to, to know to interact, to, to know to do something, because it can be this hidden uh, wrestling match. Yeah. I was going to say, one time I met this guy at uh, the different church we were 
that he had on a hard cervical collar. And I had had neck surgery a couple of years before, so I'm always very, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, I'm so, hey, I, I went through seven weeks of that. Yeah. Anyway, and I, I told him I'd had surgery, and he, I said, what, what happened to you? He said, oh, I tried to hang myself. So, I mean, conversation stopped. Right, like, uh, <laughs> I don't know the right thing to say after that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I've never read it before, and he said that. And, I mean, I, I, part of me wonders, did he just say that because he got tired of people? <laughs> Some people would. But, sure, but, sure. You could have gotten back out of my saying, same here. Yeah, I mean, I did. I think I'd already told him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I was going to say, the guilt that you feel afterward that you could have done more, mm. that you didn't. Yeah, there can be this, this haunting question of, well, what if I had done this or what if I had done that? Uh, that stays with us. Yeah, and all, all these questions and thoughts I really identify with. And uh, my goal for this morning is that one way that we join Jesus is we join him in this kind of, not kind of, but this incarnational approach of how do we draw near to people who are wrestling with suicidal thoughts <clears throat> or recovering from suicide attempts or family and friends who are grieving the loss of a loved one to suicide. And there's so many things that can, that can stand in between us and drawing near to people. Uh, whether it's the anxiety and fear of, I have no idea what to do. Or I don't know how to identify with that. Or I don't know what to say. Um, and so three questions uh, I want to look at. Um, one is, why do people die by suicide? Two, of how do we as church think about suicide in light of the kingdom of God? And three, how do we join Jesus in responding to suicidal thoughts and behaviors? Uh, and this idea of kind of closing the distance, because for me, the distance that I have to an idea or an experience matters a great deal of the questions that I form and the responses that I make. Um, I remember uh, a graduate experience. We were uh, to take a people group that we had heard about but not talked with and go to them. Uh, I had always heard about, read about people of the Islam faith, but I hadn't talked with them. And that distance shaped the questions and the responses that I had. And it wasn't until I went to people and started talking with them and befriended them that my questions began to change and my responses began to change. Um, And so that's my goal here, is that can we find ways to draw close, um, to shorten the distance so that we can understand, so that we can ask the right questions and respond in ways um, that join Jesus in his response to us. So first, why do people die by suicide? Um, (laughs) it's It's a very daunting question. Uh, to first, I want to kind of give a sketch of what this looks like in Tennessee uh, on kind of a big picture and on a very personal level. Um, so in Tennessee, do you have a guess of how people die by suicide every year? Right? It's not talked about. <laughs> it's not, it's not, there, there's no way this information gets out. Uh, it's around 1,000 people every year. It's more than the people dying of motor vehicle accidents every year, not only in the state of Tennessee but across the country. Uh, it's the 10th leading cause of death, and it's the only one of the top 10 leading causes of death that's on the rise. Um, particularly in Davidson County, it's 88 people last year. Uh, in Williamson County, it was 22. turns out to be between 10 and 15 people per 100,000. Um, we know that it's men a lot more than women. Four out of five suicide deaths are by men, um, primarily because of the, the means that they use. Uh, firearms are involved in half of all suicide deaths nationwide. They're involved in two-thirds of all suicide deaths in uh, Tennessee. Uh, and we know this picture of if, if we're looking at the people group who are dying by suicide, we know that it is primarily middle-aged and older white males. Um, easily that's the vast majority. 
Um, but that's kind of, uh, that's big abstract, that's numbers. I want to tell you about some people I've met. Uh, one is named Kevin Hines. Uh, and I'm using his real name because he, he shares this story very regularly. His book, uh, Cracked Not Broken, it's a fantastic autobiography on this. Uh, Kevin Hines was sure that nobody cared about him. Now, to be sure, he had a very loving mother and father who were very involved in his life, but he thought there's no way they could love me because of who I am. He wrestled with severe bipolar disorder. He heard voices. He was sure that the government and several others were out to kill him. And one day he woke up and said, this is it. Today I'm going to die. He lived in San Francisco, and so he started taking the bus out to the Golden Gate Bridge. And along the way, he put a challenge to himself. He said, if just one person comes up and talk to me, I'll tell him everything and I won't jump. But I am sure that no one cares, because how could anyone care about me? And on the way, he's in the back of the bus and he's crying. No one says a word. He gets to the bridge, and he walks on the bridge for over an hour, pacing back and forth. He says, if one person, if one person says something. And finally, a lady came up to him and he said, thank you, God, thank you, God. She said, will you take my picture? <laughs> He's like, huh. So he takes his, her picture, and he runs, and he catapults himself off the Golden Gate Bridge. He said, as soon as my feet left the ground, I thought, what have I done? He said, I didn't have very long. It was about four seconds. My prayer was, God, I don't want to die. And through a series of miraculous interventions, he lived. He said, when he woke up 30 feet underneath the water, um, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, his one thought was, I cannot die because I do not want people to think that I wanted to die at the end. And this is something we find in a lot of people, this ambivalence, this, even when things are so rough, they, there's this wish to die, they would throw themselves off a bridge. There's part of them that is desperate to want to live. Um, and man, I encourage you to read Kevin's story. It's, it's powerful. Two people I've met in the last couple of weeks. Uh, now I will change some of their um, information. Um, one lady we'll call Kendall. She's wrestled with depression most of her life and recently started having panic attacks where she feels so uncomfortable, so on edge in her own skin. She gets disoriented, doesn't even uh, know where she is. She just knows she can't stand that state. And one morning she woke up and she could not stand it anymore. And so she grabbed a butcher knife and thought, well, let me just see what it's like and cut her elbow. It's like, that is too painful. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, so I'll go to the dollar store, and I'll buy some razor blades, and I'll cut my wrist. But before she walked out the door, she had a social worker that she's really close to and said, I will call my social worker. She will help me out with this. So she called. The social worker came immediately, picked her up, brought her in, and she was treated on her inpatient units. Um, And as I was sitting with her, uh, I always want to know what's most important to people. What is it that would make making it through a painful part of life worth it? She said, I don't know, but I want to find out. What can make life worth living? A gentleman the next week, actually this past week, um, we'll call him Bill, older guy, no history of mental illness, no history of much. He sat with me and he said, Adam, I should be fat, dumb, and happy right now. I'm retired. I bought my house outright. I have a girlfriend who stays with me. I don't have any cares, but I don't know why to live, why I should live. And I wake up, and just in the past month, I've woke up with this pit in the ball of my stomach. I just, I, I don't know what to do with myself. It's the only thing he knows to do is to watch TV until it fades, which is usually the middle of the afternoon. He's like, but I couldn't tell you anything that I actually watched, and I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know what's most important. I don't, what, I don't know what would make life worth living, but I want to find out. And these stories are not uncommon at all, uh, the people that I had the privilege of sitting with. Um, 
And I tell you these stories to, to kind of give a, a story to, to place some of these ideas in, because just ideas can be uh, free-floating. Because uh, what we know from, from thousands of hours of research of people sitting with people who have survived near-fatal suicide attempts is that we know broadly that people die by suicide when they are in horrific pain and they see no hope of getting out. Um, story that stuck with me a lot, too, from a gentleman named Dr. David Covington. Um, he's the current president of the American Association of Suicidology uh, and a gentleman who survived a suicide attempt. He said that, and he went to, <laughs> about five years ago, he was on Fear Factor, if you remember that, that TV show. And the task that he was faced with was holding on to two bars that, that slanted downward, was to hold on as long as he could, longer than the other contestants. The trick was he was suspended 30 feet above a pool of water. He's like, I hate heights, and I very much hate water. He's like, I guarantee you, I wanted desperately <laughs> to hold on. When the floor gave way, I thought, I've got this. I'm a psychologist. I know mindfulness. I shall calm my body. I shall outlast them by the power of my mind. He said that worked really well for about four seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then I panicked. And my hands were shaking. My hands were sweaty. I slipped one. I'm trying to grab on. And he, sh- he showed the video. And then he falls off. And he said, that is the closest experience I have had that resembles my suicide attempt. Where I desperately wanted to hold on. I desperately wanted to make it through this, but I saw no other way through this than by suicide. Um, other researchers have dug in more to see how can we best understand this, the leading which uh, is called the interpersonal theory of suicide. That's not too important. But it says there's three things that drive people to want to die by suicide. And it's, I can't use that joke as much in here. I would say it's written by psychologists, so you have to forgive our psychologists because they talk funny. But there's at least a couple in the room. Um, so forget that joke. Um, so it's thwarted belonging, which is just when you feel alone. Right? This is the kid at the, at the toy store, and everyone on the other side of the glass is in there, and they're happy, and they're fulfilled, and I'm on the outside, and I'll never be in there. And so in terms of being a meaningful part of a family or friends or society... You know, whether it's true or not, the friends and family may feel they very much belong, but in their mind, I'll never belong. An attitude that not just feeling like they don't belong, but actually that they're a burden on others. They make things worse. So not only do I not belong, but I actually make things harder for my family or for friends or for society. And it can lead to this very dangerous thought that my death would be more valuable than my life. And when those two things are there and they're hopeless about it, it can seem like the only options are this unending, unendurable pain or death, which finally provides some escape from the pain. And if those are the only two options on the table, I get why death would be on the table. The good news of it is that those aren't the only options. Pain makes it feel like that. Right? That's what pain does to us. It'd be like if you broke your leg in this class, which I hope you don't, for the least of it, because you'd be a terrible class participant at that point. <laughs> Right? You'd be like howling and screaming about your, about your leg and wanting us to call EMS, and you wouldn't have any kind of meaningful feedback. Because uh, that's what pain does to us. It gives us tunnel vision. We can't see anything else besides our pain. And that's as true in psychological pain as it is in physical pain. Uh, so this is where people find themselves. And they'll say, like uh, Kendall, when I was talking to her a couple weeks ago, in my saner moments, I don't want to die. But when I get to that point where the pain is so intense, I don't see any other option. So that's kind of the bad news of all this. <laughs> uh, I know that's, real, uh, that's not light subject matter for a Sunday morning. But we have to start there because we have to find ways to close the distance so that we can connect, so that we can draw near. 
but it leads to this really important question. So how do we as church think about suicide? Not just to be content on a scientific level, but in light of the kingdom of God. Uh, so in scripture, you can just turn to the section regarding suicide, right? <laughs> or Jesus' famous teaching on suicide. <laughs> It'd be really convenient, wouldn't it? Uh, oftentimes I wish the Bible had an encyclopedia version. But it's not, it's a story. And so in the story, we see suicide. Saul dies by suicide. Samson's a suicide of sorts. Judas dies by suicide. And all three we know are tragic, but they're not evaluated. It's not like one of the suicide happens and then God said that, no. (laughs) The story continues. Um, But the questions we then ask about these suicides becomes very important. And the Bible does have a lot in its narrative to talk about um, God's will for us as people. But before we get to that, uh, so to, to, to think a little bit about what we've inherited uh, in terms of theology. A lot of the theology I hear around suicide comes from the medieval times. Um, so going way back, uh, Augustine, Augustine, St. Augustine, was very much against suicide. I uh, saw that we had a stewardship uh, over our life and to show gratitude to God was to live our life um, honoring him. And suicide was directly opposed to that. But later, uh, Thomas Aquinas considered it a mortal sin. Um, was this theology that you don't have time for repentance after murder, and so there's no way you could gain um, atonement for it. And so he saw it as uh, an unforgivable sin, in effect. Uh, it probably got cemented even further with Dante. Uh, Dante's Inferno, you guys read it? Another not, not real uplifting <laughs> book. Uh, the rest of it, the trilogy is, right? Or at least the last part. Um, But in Inferno, suicides are in the seventh ring of hell. And that is, uh, man, uh, I've talked with, uh, at this point, around a thousand people who are contemplating suicide, and a lot of people say, well, I've thought about suicide, but I don't want to go to hell. And that's pretty much coming from Thomas Aquinas and and Dante, from what I can tell. Uh, It kind of depends on this belief that you have to say, I'm sorry, uh, before you die to get atonement. Right, this is what leads to the belief that it'd be great to die on an airplane, so you have like this nice 30-second descent to say, I'm sorry for everything before you die, and it's this really kind of shaky uh, yo-yo salvation. You hope you die at the right time. Um, going a little bit further, Luther and Calvin didn't see this as an in, uh, unpardonable sin. They saw they were against it. Obviously, they thought it was a tragedy. Um, and the reason I trace this out is because the questions that we ask around suicide become really important. And asking, is it a sin? How do we judge this? Is it unforgivable? Um, and people dive into that a lot. And it starts looking at what are their motives? Is it a choice? Things like this. Uh, but what I would offer is that this isn't the best question. Um, because when it comes to, to judging something like that, we can trust God. <laughs> we can trust God that he will do what is good and what is right and what is just. And that we don't have to figure that out. Uh, But second, and I think most importantly, is the effect of this question. Because it's led to a lot of shame. And it's led to a lot of really heavy burdens for family and friends carrying on after they've lost someone to suicide. Um, That if it is, we think, this straight ticket to hell, which I don't believe it is, then to a family already and friends already grieving this horrific loss and trying to make sense of it, now the, the community of faith that is there to, to support them and carry them and help them is saying, oh, this person you love that you didn't understand how they died, there's no hope for them. And man, it just ex- uh, exponentially increases the weight 
I think we have a far better response uh, as church that we can give. Because uh, we know this is a tragedy, right? We know that, that this is people, maybe ourselves, under incredible assault from pain, from lies, and from death, all of which we know are enemies of God and that God will defeat. Um, and that people, families, friends, need truth and love from Jesus. And that the ultimate tragedy of suicide is that it takes the pen out of the author's hand. That God still has hope and still has a design, still has a plan, still has a path and a mission for every one of us. And when we choose, if it is a choice, uh, if suicide cuts that short, then we're not allowing God to continue his story with us. And so we know it's a tragedy. Yeah. But I think we have to be careful about what the questions we ask from there. And that the most important question we can ask is then how do we respond? How do we join Jesus in a response to people who are wrestling with suicidal thoughts, recovering from suicidal actions, uh, or grieving the loss of someone they've lost to suicide? Um, and I'll be really honest, the best stuff I've read about this is from Josh Graves. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to rip it off from him for, for a minute. Uh, he wrote a great blog post looking at Judas and Peter, both betrayers of Jesus, both deniers of Jesus. Judas dies by suicide. Peter, we have to think, is at least at risk. And in this beautiful story where Jesus comes to Peter and says, feed my sheep, or, Jesus, or Peter, do you love me? And feed my sheep three times. We have to wonder, what effect did that have on Peter? What did that do? Um, I think in one sense, this is bringing Peter back into the fold. This is restoring him to community. But it's also commissioning him with a purpose to go feed his sheep. And this idea of community and of purpose, um, these are huge themes. Specifically, if you look at this question uh, of what's the opposite of suicide? It's an odd question. But is it just not dying from suicide? Is it not acting on suicidal thoughts? Is it not thinking about suicide? Yeah. Right. And how we answer that depends on how we think what suicide's like. So if suicide's like a virus, like a cold, then the opposite of having a virus is just not having it, right? I don't have a cold right now. It's the opposite of having a cold. But what if suicide is less like a virus and more like thirst? Well, the real problem of thirst isn't the presence of anything. It's the absence of something. It's the absence of water. And if suicide is more like thirst, then the opposite wouldn't be to take something away, but the presence of something else, of something more. Um, when I was counseling, um, actually, with, with Terry, uh, I work with a... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Important clarification, yeah. Right. <laughs> I worked with a young kid who was running away from home. And the question is, how do you keep someone from running away from home? It was actually out of a foster system, uh, or out of a foster home. Uh, and in one sense, it was, well, how do you just keep him in? You lock doors, you monitor, you somehow find a way to keep him from running out. That wasn't working. What he needed was not protection from running out, but a reason to stay. Which lined up a lot with the idea of belonging, having a purpose. 
And I think these are the questions we have to ask about suicide, of not how do we keep people from running out. A lot of our systems designed around that. We have too many locks, too many sedations, too many holds. And I get why they're there. But far more important than that, we need to think about what's the reason to stay. So if we go back to joint, uh, the theory on suicide, that um, if people are pushed to this from the sense of not belonging anywhere and of being a burden on others, this starts gives us some ideas of what the opposite could be. And instead of not belonging anywhere, experiencing true belonging, community, relationship, love. And instead of being a burden on others, making their lives worse, how can we give to others, make their lives better? be a valuable part, have a purpose. It's the two very things that Jesus talked to Peter about, about community and about purpose. Um, and it turns out, um, man, and there's this tragedy that happened uh, where the church and mental health or psychology split ways for about a century, um, mostly because psychology kind of fashioned itself as a secular alternative to church. And so a lot of the early guys... I say early, it's not that long ago. Late 1800s, early 1900s, didn't like church. Um, ironically, the conclusions they came to were the same as the church. <laughs> um, so even going all the way back to Freud, which has a lot of baggage of Freud. Great quote of his, love and work. That's all there is to life. Love, relationship, work, purpose. Or Erickson, uh, this guy talked about the task of life. He said that the two major tasks of adulthood, isolation versus intimacy, Intimacy being relationship, connection, community. And then the next one is generativity versus stagnation. Again, I apologize for the psychologist. No one uses that. I don't even think those are real words. <laughs> generativity being giving, uh, giving to the next generation, having a, a purpose, a legacy, something outside of yourself that you're giving versus just stagnating. It's these same themes of community, of belonging, and of giving. Uh, even Maslow with his hierarchy of needs. Talks about being pulled uh, to things after our, our, our body's working well enough with the physiological and the safety needs, of being pulled to love and connection. And being pulled to, again, this makes up words, self-actualization, of um, living into the things that you have to give. It's my paraphrase. Um, but most importantly, or the biggest one that, that captures this, is a guy named Viktor Frankl. Uh, has anyone ever read Man's Search for Meaning? Man, if you don't get anything else out of the class, read that book. <laughs> uh, it'll make up for any kind of blunderings that I have. Um, Viktor Frankl, um, say, he's trained actually as a psychiatrist and a neurologist living in Austria. He's a Jewish man um, during Nazi Germany. So <laughs> you have lots of stories from him. You have Bonhoeffer and, and Frankl this morning. Um, and he lost everything. His wife was killed. His life's work was destroyed. All of his belongings were taken Spent six months in a concentration camp working actually as a psychiatrist. Then he was transferred to Dachau, to one of the death camps, for two years. And while he was there, he not only survived, but made it his task to help the guys there live from the threat of suicide. As you can imagine, suicide was rampant in the camps. Because why live in a, in a Nazi death camp? Some of his famous quotes, one, the, the one that stays with me the most, and, well, this is it. Lots of ways to think about this in a church class. It came from Nietzsche. He breathed new life into it. <laughs> he said, He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. That what primarily moves us is meaning and purpose. Um, and his big quote is that what we had to realize 
uh, and furthermore, what we had to convince the other inmates is that the question is not what's the meaning of life, this big, daunting, abstract question. But instead, what is life asking of me? That we are the ones being questioned daily and hourly. And that we do not answer with right words, but with right conduct. Uh, he said that when we realize how unique we are, that you're the only person with not only your genetics, but your story, your relationships, your place in life, your view, your passions, your experiences, it is impossible to replace you. And as such, there are things that only you can do. Only you can be the mother or father to your children, the brother or sister to your brothers and sisters, the, the son or daughter to your parents, the, the friend to your friends, the neighbor to your neighbors, the voice in society that only you can give. If you don't do it, will someone try to step up? Yeah, can they do it in the same way? No. It's that we have something very unique to give. And if we don't give it, it'll just be left undone. It's like, <sighs> not to throw too many obscure references out. They even like jazz music. I know it's not the most popular form of music. Man, I love jazz music. Jazz music, you know, you got the you got a drum set, you got a bass, piano. If you're lucky, you got like Miles Davis or um, <laughs> Wynton Marsalis, some, some great trumpet player and a saxophone. If you're just to take one of those pieces out, if you just take the drums out of a Miles Davis solo, the song just wouldn't be the same, be impoverished. I think the same is true as life, with life. If any person you meet, that they have a, play, a part to play in the song, that if their part's taken out, then the song will be impoverished. But man, it can be so hard for people to see that. Whether it's Peter wrestling with such intense guilt and shame that he can't see that he has anything less to give, and that there's no way that he could belong, then man, Jesus comes to him and says, do you love me? Yes. Let's him confess that. Let's him say that. Go feed my sheep. You have a place. You have something to give. And man, this is who we are as church. A place to belong. A place to be loved and to love. A place to, know, to be known and to know people. And a place to join God, co-partnering with him and bringing life to the world. And we have a purpose. Um, that can still feel kind of abstract, I know. Uh, but I think this is how we draw near to people. Um, so before I move to, to one last part, that's me going on for a bit. <laughs> um, I'm curious of thoughts or questions that are with you right now uh, that may be good to kind of dig into a little more. Yeah. Uh, some of the experiences that I've had over the years, <clears throat> usually uh, people that I see have already been surrounded by family and friends, and they give them lots of great reasons to live. For example, I'm, my goodness, you've got a job and you've got this great family or you've got this wonderful home or you work in a beautiful company or you've got, and they just go on and on and on. They're mm -hmm. giving them the purposes, but it doesn't hold. Right. Because while they're giving those very things, it's probably only contributing to greater depression because why am I feeling this way and I have all those things? Right, so I should feel that and I don't. Great, I'm even more of a failure. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, of course, professionals have a different angle. You know, it's all about helping them figure out that why yeah. um, and what is it that can serve as a motivation for them to give more energy and effort. But I, I just know families, we're, we always mean well, but yeah. when we start hearing somebody say, I don't know, I don't even know why I should go on. What do you mean? You've got, and then they start overwhelming them with all these great things. Yeah. So it's just a, a pointer from my experience that you might want to just slow down and listen so that yes. they feel as though you're you're connecting and uh, displaying some form of empathy to absolutely. a really yes. hard place. Man, absolutely. Uh, so just yeah, and I, I yeah, yeah, and I, I so uh, so rings true with me. 
Uh, so for about two years, I led group um, at our crisis stabilization unit. So it'd be about 10 to 15 guys and, and uh, ladies and gentlemen who uh, were thinking about taking their own life. And I, and I knew this, like, man, they need to experience belonging. They need to experience giving. But I couldn't just tell them that. I was like, hey, don't worry. You belong. You have a lot to give because that would bounce right off people. Um, what I came to realize is that you can always argue with words, but it's a lot harder to argue with experiences. Mm-hmm. And so what I do with, with group, and I think what we are invited into, is to offer people a counter experience. So I just try to create an atmosphere around the table where people feel comfortable sharing their stories. Uh, this is what's really going on. Because a lot of times, people don't feel like they're able to do that. And they'll say like, man, people out there don't get me, but people in here get me. This is a room of complete strangers who have dramatically different stories, who find commonality of, I am facing this and I don't know what to do about it. And there's lots of cliche answers floating around me. People give me lots of advice, but they don't get it. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my comment is we, meaning the church as a whole universally, are too often a group of hiders and are yeah. authentic. And if we're individually authentic, then the person that's struggling with something isn't comparing their life to a seemingly perfect life, right? but to a life of we all have our things, and it's more of an invitation just to be with somebody and help them to feel like they belong. It's not about what you say. It's exactly. just about saying the word. They can feel more like they belong because we aren't all sitting like perfect statues. Yeah. All together. And that's what they'll say is like around this table, we realize that I'm not the only one wrestling with something and I don't know what to do about it. Uh, and that becomes this experience of belonging. And so I think far more than any kind of perfect words we could say is inviting them into this ex- experience of belonging with us. And that if we can name, man, this is how you give. Name, man, I really appreciate this that you do. Well, we're not trying to talk them into something, but invite them into experience uh, of belonging and giving. Yeah. Four out of five suicide deaths are by men. The only demographic that I'm aware of that's proven is female doctors, where we complete suicide either at the same rate or a little bit more than male doctors. Yes. And I wonder, is there a different way that you approach the female physicians since our rate of suicide is so different right. compared to other women? Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, and that, it's not proven. The, the leading thought in that uh, comes to the idea of, of capacity or capability or, or, or access uh, and that there are certain professions that are very well versed with death and, and know what it takes to die. Um, veterans, doctors, um, veterinarians, dentists, all are in kind of this group that have a much higher percentage of people dying by suicide. Uh, and sometimes you find these things where females will be more than men. Um, and I find that Honestly, I don't find too many differences in talking with a lot of men and women, but it starts really getting down to what matters most and what makes life worth living. Um, but it seems like the, the thing that pushes it that way is the, um, the past experiences, the, the capability that they experience, that they have. Um, Does it have anything to do with the context in which you, you're working that's a high-pressure, high-expectation context and, and, you know, let's say females in the medical field at that level is uh, fairly recent, you know, over the last 50 years or so it's grown. But I wonder, is, is that a part of 
that. I mean, I don't know. That would make a lot of sense to me. I think that's part of that process is the access issue. Yeah. You know, you you can't put your, I mean, you're not going to admit yourself to the hospital using Mm -hmm. your own name. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you can't even get disability insurance. Right. There's a snowball effect to having, I mean, even getting hospital privileges, they ask you about any psychiatric history. So your livelihood is put at risk if you Mm -hmm. you expose that. Right. And so it puts Mm -hmm. you at a heightened risk. Yeah. And so that's why I wonder if the, you know, psychiatric or psychological community is aware of that. Mm. Four children. Gracious. Mm. So it exists. It's here. It, yes. Um, and and I, no discrepancy Yeah, and I think what what you're sharing illustrates how needed it is to take these steps of drawing near, of understanding the context of it, because uh, everyone has there are these unique paths that take us there, and we need to appreciate those to know how we can best help. Um, let me swing around to this in just a second. I do want to leave you with, with two, two really big thoughts, or, or two ideas. Um, one is that um, if you encounter um, someone who's wrestling with suicidal thoughts, please know that what they need from you is not perfection. That they don't need you to say just the right thing. What they need is your presence. And that can be hard. There can be all sorts of anxieties. If this person might die, I might say the wrong thing. All these anxieties. And anxiety draws us away from stuff. Anxiety pushes us to avoid. But instead, if we can sit with someone and care and be present and listen and care, can do some of the most good we could ever do. Uh, and then join Jesus in speaking truth and being direct. And if someone tells you they're wrestling with suicidal thoughts, try to work with them to get help. Uh, there's lots of help resources out there. Um, a quick Google search can do it, but like the crisis text line, 741-741 if they're a texter. Um, there's the hope line, which is basically, uh, well, I don't, I have to look that one up, which is terrible. Uh, the crisis talk line of 244-7444. Basically just kind of Google this stuff. There's, there's lots of phone numbers, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, being direct with people and asking, hey, is suicide on the table? Have you had these thoughts? Or if they share it, take it seriously. And just being present with people in that moment can, be, um, can literally save lives. And then in this broader sense, as we join Jesus of, of creating a place of belonging and, ex, uh, and giving for folks, uh, I believe we can join Jesus in, in saving and healing lives. Um, I'm mindful of our time. I'm happy to stick around and talk with some of the other questions we didn't get to. Um, well, there's some extra hands in one. I'm going to say, if you have to leave, go ahead and leave. We're going to stretch it out yeah. a little bit and let people have questions, hopefully. Um, so I understand you have to go, you have kids or whatever. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, I just had a statement. My, I, we had a neighbor who was a doctor and he committed suicide. And on that, the new statement was that middle-aged men, a lot of times they blame themselves. So therefore, that's why that's a high-risk thing. And going back to the female doctors, a lot of times when you see intelligent people, they think, oh, I should be able to be happy and I should be able to solve mm. all my problems and all my family's problems. And when you can't, then they going that hopelessness. Yeah. Whereas they said lower socioeconomic people usually blame others and that's why you see high homicide homicide rates. And so mm. um, and I thought it was very interesting. I never thought, you know, I was a teenager when this happened, it just kind of stuck with me mm-hmm. my whole life. And um, I just thought that might be, you know, some insight to why female doctors are middle aged men. There's certainly a lot of self blame. I, I thought found it startling 
Um, the rate of suicide deaths to homicide rates. Suicide is consistently three times higher than homicide rates. Um, you, we always hear about the homicides, mm -hmm. and we don't hear about the suicides. Um, There's also a lot of it deaths that are not classified as suicide yes. on top of this. So the reality of how many people take their own lives is greater than yes. what we know. And one of the greatest concerns right now is the increase of suicide among adolescents and the, the age seems yes. to be dropping, mm -hmm. which is a great concern for parents because mm -hmm. so often they're interacting with friends at school and there's the, the topic of suicide is maybe perhaps more common yep. uh, because it's just more uh, awareness. Yep. And you know, at a young age, do they have the developmental capabilities of being able to process those big life experiences? And so it heightens our awareness as parents, as neighbors, as teachers, as friends, yep. you know, to be just a more alert because someone might make a decision without really being fully aware or thinking it through. Like usually an adult at least has reached the point where they're just naming every single reason why life is not worth living and, mm -hmm. and they reach that pit. Whereas the younger person does it almost like a, a spontaneous, uh, or a, it can. Yeah. Anyway, it's just an awareness that. Just remember when you're a child or adolescent, those peaks and valleys in your life, this is the first time you've been through some of these really hard times and it, you feel it very intensely and it feels horrible. That's why you have adolescents kill themselves over boyfriend-girlfriend relationships or rejection mm -hmm. on social media or something like that. This is their first time on that part of the roller coaster, and they feel it very intensely. It's sort of like the first time you have a kidney stone. There you go. I'll mention <laughs> that. That is no fun. <laughs> and you want anything better. So I want to just, I'm going to jump in because she said something, what you were saying, people who have, this is a very, as a whole, this whole church, very capable people, a very internal, what we call locus of control, mm -hmm. that I have a lot of control influence over what happens in my life. If you've been going through life and that's what's happened, you've been very effective in getting things to happen the way you want them to happen. And then things change and you get laid off, middle-aged women, or others too, you get laid off and you can't provide and you don't have any of these other things that Adam has mentioned to make life meaningful. Now you've lost all the things and you look at yourself and say, I should be able to have, I failed. Mm -hmm. I'm a failure, I can't do things, I'm not providing, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. So one of the high risk groups, you take a middle-aged man who's been laid off, unemployed. Separated. Separate, boom. Yep. All those things is maybe alcohol or drugs is involved mm -hmm. too, that, that just stacks it up. Yep. And first time suicide attempt is oftentimes the only suicide. They don't always have a history of that. There's lots more we could talk sure, about. Yeah. So, was there anybody? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So, um, that statement that you said about when there's, you know, people see two options, death or ending, you know, ending the pain by death or continuing to live in the pain. Yeah. Um, similar to women who are in abusive relationships who murder their abusers, mm -hmm. it's usually after they've exhausted all other yeah. means. Yep. And so I, I find it a little patronizing to say, well, these are the only two options. Can you talk a little bit about the progression of how someone might 
Sure. Yeah. Exhaust other options. Yeah, and I think this is why David Covington uh, likened it to holding on, right. where it's everything he could possibly do to hold on. Right. And there's a lot of things that can can uh, move us to work through those options of uh, past abuse, um, current psychiatric diagnoses. Uh, generally, it's a lot of pain, and everything that they have tried uh, has come up short, and so there it seems like there's nothing else. Yeah. Uh, but you're you're absolutely right. That's not just a one day. It's that. Right. It's this is days, weeks, months, years of trying everything you possibly could, and it's just this repeated message of you can't, you can't, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So great point. In, so in our interest to support and intervene, holy cow! Like by the time somebody's talking about suicide, there were many, many. It's been a long road. Opportunities for connection and inclusion in a community. Absolutely. And a lot of attempts. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. No, your point. We'll make this the last question. Sorry. I'll make it quick. Um, do you find that people who attempt suicide or complete suicide talk a lot about it beforehand, or don't talk a lot about it? I have a situation. Well, I know someone that tends to throw it around a bit, sure. and it's hard to decide. Do you take it seriously? Yeah. Or do you dismiss it after a while? Sure. And then if something were to happen. Then you say, well, I dismissed it because they, you know, they had a tough moment and said, well, I just want to jump out of the window right now. Yeah. Or, I, you know, you know, hand motions in the moment, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, but but in, in a serious moment, they might also say, see, this is why. Yeah. This is why. They're saying that it's on the table. Right. Yeah. So three important points on that real quick. One, the majority of people who die by suicide do not have contact with the mental health system. That's a huge problem that we have. Second, it's almost kind of on the other side, um, when they run they're called psychological autopsies of those who die by suicide, they find the vast majority, I mean we're talking like 80-90% had talked about suicide prior to dying by suicide. So we find that people talk about it. We find that most don't reach out for help uh, from, the, from the professional community. And third, I get where you're coming from. <laughs> Being on the crisis team for a couple of years, there are people who would be in once, twice a week. Uh, and the, the easy reactions become cynical or callous, like, oh, that's just Bill talking, doing right. Bill's thing. Uh, because suicide can be very powerful language in terms of evoking reactions from people. Uh, and so it's, it's this balancing act of, yes, people will use it because it's powerful language. They don't have any other language. Well, they don't believe they have any other language to say, hey, I need help or I need attention. Uh, but at the same time, they're saying, this is, on the op- this is on the table for me, and we have to take that seriously. And so I think it's always best to err on the side of taking this very seriously because it is on the table for them. Great question. Thanks for the interaction. Yeah. Questions and um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Aren't you glad there are people like 